everyone, this is Kina Wolfenstein, and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. Uh, this series of episodes, I'm interviewing different therapists about experiential and bottom-up modalities that they like to use so people listening can be educated and informed on all these different modalities that are out there, um, particularly for working with complex trauma. Today, I am interviewing Jennifer Scully, and this is her bio. Jennifer is a trauma therapist running a humble private practice who does this work because she's passionate about supporting human beings through the human experience. In this interview, we will be discussing Stephen Porges Safe and Sound Protocol, Accelerated Resolution Therapy, and Psychodrama, and you can read Jennifer's bio in the podcast description. It will be posted there. Before we jump in, I have just a few other announcements. So my link tree will also be posted in the podcast description and there you will find access to both of the workshops that I've done, um, my Patreon where I've been publishing writing. I also actually have the workshops published on Patreon for my subscribers and a few other resources. I also wanted to mention briefly that my practice uh, just hired two new therapists. And so we have one therapist in Texas and one in Missouri that are both going to be practicing from an experiential bottom-up perspective and um, working with trauma. So just wanted to throw that out there in case any listeners in those states are looking for therapists and want to reach out. Um, The link to the practice will also be posted in the podcast description. And I think that's it. So thank you guys for listening and I hope you enjoyed Enjoy the episode. All right. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, Kina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear about the kinds of therapy that you do. I feel like there's there's so many different experiential modalities, and these are ones that I haven't been able to hear about yet. So um, I guess, can we just go one at a time and can you just kind of give a little spiel of what is psychodrama, what is ART and what is the safe sound protocol? Yeah, of course. Do, do you have any exposure at all to any of them? So I know a little bit about, um, ART, um, just from reading the coherence therapy training manual, because they list ART as like one of the kinds of therapy that can kind of do the memory reconsolidation process. Um, and then I have like a very loose understanding of psychodrama. Um, but yeah, no, no, like specific training in any of those. Okay. Um, I'll, I'm going to do psychodrama last because that's my favorite one. Psychodrama is is really my pet therapy. I love psychodrama. Awesome. Um, We'll save the best for last. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I really love that work. Psychodrama is the work that I primarily use in my own healing journey. So I have a real, um, soft spot for that work. Uh, okay. So accelerated resolution therapy, uh, is like an offshoot of EMDR. The lady whose name is Lainey, who started ART, is like a former student of um, Francine Shapiro's. And so EMDR is, as you know, it's like a bilateral stimulation therapy, Mm -hmm. dual attention therapy. ART uses the same methodology, uses bilateral stimulation, but it has, um, in my opinion, what makes it different is that it has the intentional focus on memory reconsolidation. I do think memory reconsolidation happens in EMDR and other bilateral stimulation therapies, but in ART, there's like an intentional access point for memory reconsolidation. So um, it's more protocol than EMDR. And, you know, EMDR is kind of protocol heavy. Mm -hmm. 
brain spotting being another bilateral stimulation therapy. That's actually my favorite of all the BLS therapies is brain hmm. spotting. But a- ART is very protocol driven and it's very visual stimuli driven. Um, so for therapists who really relax uh, into a model, you know, like having something that's very structured, it's a really good therapy for therapists who enjoy structure and really oh, good okay. clients who enjoy structure. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And wait, so ART is bilateral stimulation or no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. ART uses eye movements. So, um, and you know, in EMDR and brain spotting, you're kind of allowed or encouraged to choose whatever bilateral activation a client prefers. Although early EMDR was strictly eye movements, but now they train you to, you know, use whatever methodology is comfortable for the client in ART. They're kind of like very strictly adhered to the eye movements. Like the trainers are really very focused on that. You can't stray. You've got to use eye movements. It's a set amount of eye movements. It's like 40 bilateral passes. Um, They talk about the speed and pace. Very, very structured. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's that's one of the things that um, makes ART a little tricky for me is that it's so structured. I'm more of a kind of organic, subjective phenomenology, go with the flow type of therapist. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the structure of ART gets in my way. So I don't use that one as much as I use EMDR or brain spotting. Okay. Okay. When people need structure, it's really good. Yeah. Is it, um, is it the same as EMDR where like you're reprocessing either specific memories or kind of core beliefs or what are like, what's the target for the reprocessing in ART? Yeah. Typically in ART, you're going after visual memory. So is visual memory attached to core belief? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You're looking for like in EMDR, you know, they call it the float back point. So you're looking for that in ART also. You're kind of looking for the original um, memory that okay. kind of turned on the neurogenesis of a core belief. So mm-hmm. it's kind of floating back to an earlier time and trying to get at the inception point for a traumatic memory. Okay, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's ART. So you use that one sometimes, but kind of with brain spotting or EMDR as well, all as, as options for the bilateral stimulation processing. Yeah. I, I weave, I do a lot of EMDR and brain spotting weaved in with other therapies. Like mm-hmm. my kind of primary collective go-to is BLS with the addition of brain spotting. Brain spotting has, um, you know, you're tapping into the ocular networks. And so it's like EMDR plus, in my opinion. Okay. I do like a combination of those with somatic experiencing and IFS. That tends to be my like go-to package, but I'll pull ART out of the toolbox when A, a client is requesting it, or B, when I have a client whose um, memory is very like pointed, like when Mm -hmm. no, like um, I use it a lot with folks who've suffered from car accident trauma. Mm. Um, because it's like this very set and specific moment in time where the trauma happened. They don't have to be curious about where the trauma came from. They're not exploring how them came into being. It's like very poignant and obvious. I have trauma from the shock of the car accident. So it works good for like acute trauma. 
Cool. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So you could use that if someone had like a mix of maybe more complex trauma from childhood attachment stuff. And then they also had some like more acute incidents of trauma. You could kind of use different strategies for different trauma yeah. sources. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a nice tool to weave in and yeah. have in your tool bag, but I wouldn't, ex I wouldn't use it as like an exclusive model with um, complex trauma. I mean, I wouldn't use anything as an exclusive model. Yeah. They're all just tools in the tool bag. Totally. Um, but yeah, it would not necessarily be my go-to for relational trauma. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Okay. So that's ART. And then what's next? SSP? SSP, safe, safe and sound protocol. That's Stephen Porges's listening intervention. Do you, um, I mean, I know that you um, are familiar with Stephen Porges's work because I, yes. I, I, I really follow your content, your content. I'm not a, you know, I'm older. I'm Gen X. I'm not, social media is not really my thing. <laughs> um, but I recently got on TikTok because <clears throat> one of my kids is on TikTok. She's like, oh. you know, um, <clears throat> so I kind of hopped on and, you know, therapy stuff started popping up thanks to the algorithm gods and your content kind of came into my sphere of influence and, um, it's really good content. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. I had never heard of coherence therapy before, and you were kind of doing some little snippets of coherence therapy language. And I was like, what is this? So now I have the training manual oh, I'm cool. right now. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I really, I really enjoy your content. I really love how the newer generation of therapists and business people in general are like really shaking up the way that business is being done. It's really fun for me to watch the young people are making things different. Um, yeah. So yeah, I appreciate it. But thank you. So I know that you're familiar with Stephen Porges's work because I've seen you. Yes. Yeah. Mentioned yes. Theory. Yeah. So okay. I, I learned about kind of the polyvagal theory. I did some of the earliest episodes of this podcast are about polyvagal theory. And I read a lot of his work and I read a lot of Deb Dana's work. So I, I think I, I have a pretty good understanding of kind of the nervous system and polyvagal theory in general, but I haven't done the SSP training. I've read a little bit about it. I think I like almost did it a few times, but I haven't done it. So I'm excited to hear about that, that yeah. particular tool. Um. The SS, you, you are always mentioning how coherence therapy is nice because they're not grossly capitalistic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, like, yeah, like an affordable is, training. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. not trying to make it inaccessible. Like some of these other models are just yes. like extorting the brick out of, um, I know us. like you can get trained in this if you have an extra $5,000 laying around. <laughs> it's crazy. $5,000 per level. And you need to go through nine levels and then you <laughs> yeah. have to pay $600 per consultation session. For it's, real. It's ridiculous. So SSP is nice in that way. Also, the training is affordable. Um, they make it really accessible and it's just a listening intervention. So it's not, it's not really um, an active therapy. It's like a passive receiving. Hmm. So Stephen Porges has designed this, um, it's sound intervention and huh. he, he takes music. Like you can pick different tracks. There's like classical music track. There's kids music, which has got like kids bop songs on it. It's really cute. Mm -hmm. And then there's like, kind of like adult, like contemporary pop or contemporary rock music. And you listen to these playlists, but, um, I'm not a musician, so I don't understand musical language. So I might mm -hmm. be strong language here, but it's like, it's music that you're familiar with, but it's in different tones. 
than you would normally hear them in. And hmm. so the music is attuned to kind of force different nerves in your ears to kind of become active. So when people have experienced a lot of um, chronic and ongoing trauma, what Stephen found was that the ear, the, the nerves in the ears, which there's like 12 different nerves that feed from the ears into the brainstem and through the brain and down into the central nervous system is that the nerves that um, are oriented for our periphery are like, they're really finely attuned because they're mm. overactive because we've, we've had a lot of trauma. And so like how um, Le Peter Levine is always talking about the gazelle in the grass, right? Who's scanning. Yeah. 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 It's like a hypervigilance thing, yeah. basically. Like the right. ears are primed for taking in any danger. Yeah signals okay yeah in the same way that our eyes get primed for taking in dangerous signals so do mm -hmm. our ears and so there are nerves in the ear that um are primed for periphery hearing and then there are nerves in the ear that are primed for like softer close listening hearing and those nerves get like atrophied because they don't get used mm. and the the nerves of hypervigilance so to speak like get really finely attuned and so you listen to this music that's toned differently than you would hear it on the radio. And it kind of forces your other nerves to start working. It, hmm. it kind of draws them out and pulls them in and then tunes them. Um, and so it's really, that is a really good intervention for um, neurodivergent folks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a lot of... Um, also because those nerves can get demyelinated and um, demyelination tends to be, you know, um, that tends to be a common issue that we see in neurodivergency. Uh, and so- Can you I, define that for everyone real quick? The demyelination, is it, hmm. I actually haven't heard that either. Demyelination? Demyelination. That's um, the melting of the myelian sheath around the nervous system tissue. Oh. So our nervous system tissue is like, wiring you know if you see like wiring throughout your house like you have the wires and then you have the blue or the red kind of coating that the mm -hmm. wires run through like a tube our nervous system tissue is the same way we have you know the nerves and then we have a coating of fatty acid tissue that coats the nerves and in demyelination that fatty acid tissue kind of melts away like ms Mm -hmm. um, and so people become very sensitive to sensory stimulation because when we receive something through our external senses, through our eyes, through our ears, the information comes in, you know, gets processed through the nervous system tissue and it travels. It's supposed yeah. to just travel smoothly, you know, like through the tube up to our brain. But when that tissue is melted, the sensory stimuli comes in and it's like shooting off like firecrackers through your nervous oh, system. Oh, wow. So, that's so interesting. Yeah. That's in essence, that's what's going on with, um, you know, sensory processing issues, which are very hmm. prevalent in neurodivergency because mm -hmm. alienation and neuroencephalopathy are, um, they're just hallmark features of those disorders. So a lot of the people who come to me for SSP are actually moms of kiddos who are, you know, suffering with the physical symptoms of spectrum disorders. And so we do hmm. the protocol with them. Wow. That is so interesting. Okay, 
Cool. So the the overall goal of the listening protocol, it sounds like, is to basically help repair some of the like basically to decrease the level of sensitivity, like the heightened sensitivity um, and to repair the ability to like take in feedback while being regulated. Is that right? Um, yes. And taking in feedback, definitely with adults. Um, we want, you know, we want, we anticipate adults to be feedback receptive. And so we can lack feedback receptivity when we have emotional dysregulation and we can have emotional dysregulation when our nervous system is constantly firing and still like wired, like tired, but wired. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't necessarily expect that with kiddos, but it can be, but we, but we see it, but it's not with kiddos. It's not necessarily the goal, right? Because you match the goals to the maturational development. And so, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely like a side effect that you could see and, and, and gives them capacity to grow into that because Mm -hmm. they're operating with a nervous system that's less stimulated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Are we on to your, the, the favorite one, the psychodrama? I love psychodrama so much. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited to hear about it. Yes. Tell us about psychodrama. Um, okay. Psychodrama is a model that came, that was created by this um, guy named Jacob Moreno uh, a long, 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 long time ago. Um, and his wife, Zerka Moreno, um, who Zerka was not actually a therapist, but um, she was a better psychodramatist than Jacob is <laughs> here from my mentor who taught me psychodrama, who studied directly under both of them. So psychodrama is experiential. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing about psychodrama is that it contains components of like all the therapy, like interventions that we talk about in therapy world. So we talk mm-hmm. about cognitive therapy, experiential therapy, somatic therapy, um, insight-oriented therapy. And psychodrama really has elements of all of that just naturally built into it. Um, So that's what, in my opinion, what makes it really powerful. Psychodrama is like therapy on steroids. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's got, it has one, I've been doing psychodrama since... 2005 um i've never seen anything more powerful um but it has limitations right like you kind of do it like in a retreat setting you can't do psychodrama one-on-one with clients oh you can't can't do it remotely you can take pieces of psychodrama and adapt them to work one-on-one with clients, but in essence, psychodrama is individual therapy done in a group format. Okay. So in psychodrama, you have, um, a director, which is the therapist, and then you have a protagonist, which is the client. And then you have all of the group members and the therapist and the protagonist, they work together on the psychodrama quote unquote stage, which can be a stage if you're working in a theater or, you know, it could be the center of the circle or, you know, your living room, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. wherever your group is meeting and you are reenacting moments from your life in order to get the client to a point of insight 
And then you move from a point of insight into catharsis. You kind of then recreate the scene in a way that the client can get what they needed that they didn't get at the time. And so it has Mm -hmm. like these pieces of memory reconsolidation naturally built into it. I, I don't think the founding fathers of psychodrama knew that's what was happening. But now that we have research on memory reconsolidation, you know, we can see that that's what's happening. Huh. And then once you um, kind of go through that process with the client, then you go through this process of exploring um, new coping patterns for the client to use, you know, as they go back into their life mm-hmm. and be exposed to things that were triggering to them. And so in that work, you are calling on group members to come and play a role in your drama, it's called. So when you're recreating all of this, Mm. we call that um, having a drama. And so you call on members to come and kind of sit in, like, let's say you were having a psychodrama and you were revisiting a conversation you had with your mom when you were 10. You would, mm-hmm. you would call on a group member to come in and to play the role of your mother. Hmm. And in that role, the client, there's not, the, the client's not ad-libbing or anything like that. So it's not, it's a little different than drama therapy in that way. And psychodrama is really, um, it's kind of client-centered at its core. You are always kind of staying in the tail of the comet of the client. That's a brain spawning term, tail of the comet. That's not a <laughs> client-centered term, but you, okay. you know what I mean. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're following the phenomenology of the yeah. client. And so if you called on me to come and play the role of your mother, I would sit down quietly in the chair, wherever you place the chair in the scene. And then you and I would reverse roles. You would become your mother. I would become you. And then you would say the things that you you know, experienced your mother as saying, you would kind of feed me the lines, so to speak. So then I, I would have that. And then we would reverse, I would go back to being your mother and you would be you again. And then I would give you those lines that you just gave to me so that you could hear that outside of yourself. Hmm. There's a lot of this kind of experience of like role reversing and um, doubling. And it's, it's very client led. And through that process, um, the client gets to re-experience like that, that scene that was disturbing to them. And then through experiencing it in this way, that's like really experiential and kind of, um, I mean, you're engaged, you're re-engaging with the whole environment, right? It's not just telling your therapist the story. You are putting your body back into it in the way that we Mentally, we do that with memory reconsolidation, right? We have client close our eyes, go back to that day. Right. What did you see? What did you smell? You know, what color was it? How old do you feel? We're we're actually creating that whole scene for the client to step into. And so um, like big feelings really happen in psychodrama. Yeah. And this is the one caveat I the one concern I have about it as a therapy that we'll, I'll, I'll talk about in just a moment here is, is that can create some problems. So Mm. you go into the scene, the client's really like feeling all of it again. And so you, 
you know, the client becomes activated, which is a part of the process of memory reconsolidation, right? Is to reopen the memory network. Mm -hmm. So we're going into the memory network and, and then the client can recreate the experience the way they need it. Like, let's say you walked away from the conversation with your mom and you felt like you weren't heard. You just felt that was what you took away from it. I wasn't heard. And Mm -hmm. that this kind of core memory network of I've never heard, nobody ever listens to me, nobody cares what I have to say. So you go back to the moment where that was created, you get the insight, oh, that's what was going on. It also gives you an opportunity to kind of look at your scene from other angles. So sometimes we'll call in a double for the protagonist and then we'll pull the protagonist out and we'll have them kind of look at what's going on in the scene. So the protagonist can begin to see whether or not they played any role in their own suffering. And sometimes... Mm -hmm. That's not the case, right? Like when you're a kiddo, you you know, nothing that's happening to you is ever your, you know, you're not to to it. You're just being victimized by it. But sometimes when we're in adulthood, we recreate, you know, problems that we carried with us our whole life. And we do contribute to our own suffering because we're acting in ways that are self-defeating because we're coming from the space of protection for our traumatized parts. And so it really helps you get perspective on, you know, was my boss not hearing me or was I shut down and couldn't let anything else in? So it's this kind of Mm -hmm. really beautiful dual process of opening up the memory networks, coming into compassion for yourself as you witness yourself being victimized, and then also kind of getting this bird's eye view of how you might be contributing to the perpetuation, you know, of your own suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the zoomed out, like zoomed out view of it. Yeah. Listening to you describe that, I can totally imagine um, how powerful that would be and how that would, you know, create the memory reconsolidation. Cause it basically, it sounds like an embodied enacted version of what, we have clients do internally with a lot of different kinds of therapy. It's like an externalized process because you know what you're describing exactly of going back to the scene and kind of playing it out. And then even those um, kind of reparative experiences where you have someone go back to a memory and give themselves, you know, give their inner child what they needed back then or say what they wish they could have said, you know, all those kinds of things where you, we go back and almost rewrite the memory. Yeah. So it's like doing that, but in an external embodied way with other participants. Oh, embodied way. That is literally the perfect way to describe it. It is such an embodied practice. Yeah. It definitely embraces those kind of somatic pieces of, you know, of good therapy. It's very embodied. Mm -hmm. After the client's having the insight, um, Sometimes there can be some cathartic release. That's my caveat for psychodrama is that cathartic release can be really intense, as I'm sure you know. Yes. There's a difference between cathartic release and like action potential release that we do in somatic experiencing, right? Like in somatic experiencing, we slow everything down and we release everything like very intentionally, very slowly. Mm -hmm. And we're feeling like the micro movements and the small twitch muscles and that's what kind of brings on that like trembling state that we see a lot in somatic mm-hmm. And so it's this very kind of like controlled way of releasing. And in cathartic re- release, you know, we can like move into a place of like explosive anger. 
Mm-hmm. One of the very earliest psychodrama sessions I ever did as a client, um, I was so shut down with anger, so afraid to express my anger that I was shut down. And my therapist um, wanted me to like beat up a tree with a baseball bat. He had this like sports mat wrapped around a tree mm-hmm. and he handed me a bat and was like, you need to beat the tree. You've got to get in touch with your anger. And I shut down. I was like, absolutely not. I will mm-hmm. not do that. F you the way. And he said, okay, go sit down. I'm not going to, you know, if you're not going to work, I'm not going to work with you. Go sit down. I got people who mm-hmm. were willing to work. And so <laughs> um, I ended up beating up the tree and it was very cathartic, but it was very um, chaotic release. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, you know, it was like a big, strong, like, he's like a guy's guy, kind of like a burly, really tall, kind of muscly man. And so um, I felt very safe to like release in that way because mm-hmm. you know his presence is kind of so big and strong and solid. Um, but doing psychodrama as a director, like that cathartic release, um, it's not always a safe way to release. Like back in 60, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, when um therapy, like experiential therapy was kind of like new age. Yeah. Um, and you know, they were doing like rebirthing therapy and all this kind of weird stuff. Yes, happening. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, like cathartic release was kind of thought to be like the gold standard, like get it out. You just you can't have it in you. And there was there was no action potential release back then that we knew of. And um, so cathartic release was the norm. And so my therapist kind of came through training during those days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I personally as a five foot five woman who doesn't like to fight and doesn't want to like hold somebody down who's aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Cathartic release is a little, um, little more scary. So that's the one thing that, um, the one caveat. I yeah. Psychodrama. Like basically it can be kind of too intense or like, uh, very intense without maybe the same level of like slowing down and containment that helps other forms of release be okay. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. It can get uncontained. And as you know, with relational trauma, right. With, um, with CP TSD folks can, you know, dysregulate, um, dissociate and, um, back in the beginning stages of psychodrama, I don't think dissociation was understood in the way that it's, I mean, we have so many, there's so much research now and brain imaging studies and we understand yeah. it now. back then we just thought it was this multiple personalities as it used to be called. Right. And we thought that's all it was. We didn't understand the nuances or the gradation or the spectrum of dissociation. Mm-hmm. And so with cathartic release, because it's so, it can be so uncontained, you can, people can get flooded. Right. Right. So it's, yeah, psychodrama can be it, it can bring that on. So it's important to like be working in a group that has experience, be working with a director who has capacity to hold chaotic release. Um, and, you know, in a more nuanced and 2023 version, not be bringing on chaotic cathartic release in the same yes. way, just slowing it down and doing it in more of like an SE type of way. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I imagine like the resourcing and stabilizing phases of therapy could help with that too, you know, where people kind of like build up enough regulating tools that then they can experience that cathartic release without it, you know, being too flooding versus if you were to kind of try to plunge someone into that early into therapy without the necessary skills, it could be too much. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of like a higher, I don't, um, I don't know what other language to put on it, but to say like, it's like a, it's more of like a self-actualizing therapy than it is like a grounding and stabilizing therapy. Like um, I might have someone, you know, kind of go through some DBT work, Mm-hmm. those kind of emotional regulation skills online um, before I put them into a psychodrama group. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of this like top of the Maslow pyramid type of type of work. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So to, to go back to the model in action, once we move through the part where the client's getting insight and catharsis, then we do then, then, then the client is allowed to like recreate the scene to get what they needed. And this is that, like you were saying, like, this is how we do it in our mind's eye with, with coherence therapy and other memory reconsolidation is we have them, oh, you know, kind of see yourself being held, see yourself being hugged and rocked. Mm-hmm. Psychodrama, we can bring in these group members and recreate that experientially if we want to. So I w- right. would have to, like, if I prefer to sit and do all that visually in my head, that would be fine. But if I needed that somatic experience of being held and rocked, I could call on a group member to come and sit in that space with me and just Mm. how that group member, here's what I need right now. Here's how I need you to play the role. And then we just, we go through that week and this can show up in a million different ways, like getting the nurturing or like having a conversation do over or mm-hmm. for people who have a really intense fawn response, a l- lot of times this part of the work looks like them like getting to step into their power and use their yes. voice to kind of scream and yell and be like, fuck you and I don't deserve this and shut up and yep. Yep. Saying all those things that they had shut down before, mm-hmm. um, clear out their throat mm-hmm. chakra. Mm-hmm. So that that part of the work is kind of my favorite that's like my favorite piece of the day. Yes. I love that, that empowerment stuff. And I mean, it sounds very vulnerable too. like with, with the group members, you know, actually, I feel like it already takes so much to build rapport, um, you know, between client and therapist for the client to be able to go to those really vulnerable places. And so imagining this, I'm just thinking about like, how do you, or what is that process like of getting a bunch of group members to all feel able and willing to be so vulnerable in front of each other. Yeah. I'm really glad you're bringing this up. I probably would not have thought to bring this up, but it is such a port, an important component. Um, healthy psychodrama groups have developed relationships. Like the group that I um, primarily participated in, I was a member of for 15 years. And so we met um, every other week in a church basement and then mm-hmm like two or three times a year, we would have big, like five day long kind of intensives. And so we were like really established. We all knew each other. We were safe and comfortable with each other. So that is a really important part of this process. And that is one of the primary things that has kind of driven this type of interactional therapy out of favor. Mm. Is when the HMO model of healthcare 
took over our industry and capitalized everything, um, you know, no one's really paying for group therapy anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can maybe run a group and I don't know, I think like Blue Cross Blue Shield reimburses like 15 bucks for group therapy. So mm-hmm. it's kind of pushed people away from doing group therapy or interactional therapy. And so it's harder to get that going now. You would, in order to really make it be worthwhile, you would need to be working with people who are getting to know each other, building group rapport before ever diving into psychodrama mm-hmm. um, and really having a safe community. I was recently headhunted by um, an inpatient center here local to me um, because they want to run psychodrama groups. And I actually refused the position as much as I love mm-hmm. the work because they were like, well, you know, we, it's fluctuates between like 24 people and 32 people at any given time. And, um, you know, you, you can like have one of our staff members come and support you. And I was like, but there's no way for me to develop the group. Like mm-hmm. they couldn't understand this piece, right. They couldn't. The understand and, yeah. Yeah. That this is not just like, it's not like group talk therapy where everyone just gets to share and have their story heard, which is important, right? It's mm-hmm. to share and have your story heard and have other people validate it. But this is a way different animal. Yeah. And agency could not get that. I, in a million different ways, was trying to help this um, woman who was doing the hiring to understand it's not only ineffective, but it can be really damaging to people because it is so vulnerable. You can't just open up your wounds and ask someone who you don't know or don't trust, can you come in and play my mother and rock me and read me a bedtime story? No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely too vulnerable. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it it's like now in 2023, it's like an old-fashioned, old-school therapy. You don't really see or hear much about it anymore. The people who are still active in the psychodrama community are like, they're just people who are kind of diehard fans of the work and love it. Yeah and they have community together, but yeah, you're not going to find it like in your Hmm. meetup groups. I don't think. Right. Right. You, you had mentioned at the beginning that some of those skills can be adapted um, for individual therapy. So I'm curious to hear about that. Like what parts of this could happen with just a therapist and a client? Um, So a lot of the times, some of the, some of the one-on-one piece, some of the pieces I'll take out and use for one-on-one are like, the role reversal piece, which is in essence, like gestalt empty chair. So I'll have a client like set up two chairs. I'll have a client set the scene, you know, and when you set the scene, it gives important information. Like let's say um, client is working through something with their sibling group. I'll say, okay, set the scene. And let's say they have three siblings. They put the chairs around the, my office space And it gives, that gives me a visual sense of how they're experiencing the relationship with each sibling. Like Mm -hmm. one sibling may be far away in the corner. Right. One sibling may be right next to their chair. So it's like family constellation work in that way. Mm -hmm. And then I can have them do the role reversal, but there won't be anybody playing the role of the sibling. They'll just be like, like we do with empty chair. They'll just be kind of talking to the empty space. going into that chair and um, bouncing it around that way. Also cathartic release. Mm -hmm. Um, 
although I do it in a much more contained way. I don't have anyone beat up a tree with a baseball bat, but <laughs> I do like have the tension rod from DNMS that, you know, you put under your feet and then you pull to get the tension going in the periphery. Okay. Or you can just use a rolled up towel to like you put a rolled up towel under the feet and then you have the client pull and push with their feet and pull with their hands on the towel at the same mm-hmm. time. And that generates some, um, some somatic release of yeah. so things like that. There's like little somatic things that you could pull out. There's little experiential things that you can pull out and certainly role-playing that you can pull yeah. out. It's just there aren't other people playing the parts. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And some of that does, I definitely see some overlap with some of the coherence therapy techniques that I've learned about, you know, they talk about, um, the, having the clients talk to someone instead of about them, just as like a quick way to make it more experiential, where if you're talking about your feelings towards your dad or your boyfriend or your sister or whatever, like just kind of the empty chair thing where you talk to that person instead of about them. Um, and then with the cathartic release, I don't know where I got this from or if this is something that I made up, I can't, I'm not really sure, but (laughs) I found that, um, sometimes if cathartic release is too intense to do in like an embodied way in real life, that it can kind of happen imaginally. And so I've guided clients to like uh, literally just imagine or visualize themselves releasing rage or grief. And that that can be like a more contained way, but that you still kind of will, will often get those feelings of cathartic release from it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally do that too. I love that you do that. I do that too. I feel like that's very like IFS driven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, All these modalities overlap so much. I'm like, it's a little bit of IFS, a little gestalt, a little. I I remember my, my therapist saying to me when I was really my mentor, my, when I talk about my psychodramatist, um, he, he's my mentor. He like, this is the guy who kind of taught me like how to get out of my own way as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, meet the client where they're at. He's like a real old school subjective phenomenology guy. And so I get all credit to him, but he, I remember him saying to me when I was really new, like, you know, if you just hang on in the field long enough, you'll see everything come back around. It's the same science in a different package with different language being marketed Mm -hmm. by different people. And Mm -hmm. I'm definitely starting to see that happen. Like IFS, like Bradshaw was doing inner child work back Mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s. You know, it's more nuanced and in everything now under IFS, but it's in essence, it's like the same. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've had some core pieces of wisdom that we've just kind of been like building off of in different ways for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Even EMDR, right? Like Therapists did not discover bilateral stimulation, right? Aboriginal societies have been using bilateral stimulation for eons. Yeah. Like, you know, native cultures have always used drumming as a mm-hmm. method of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's funny how once we get our hands on it, we think we own it. And then, yeah, yeah then we want to like copyright it and gatekeep right. it. It's so silly. It's just right. We yeah. don't own bilateral stimulation. <laughs> yes, we don't own any of any yeah. of you know feeling. Yeah, I I had another episode here where I was talking with a therapist about how so many of the popular kinds of experiential and bottom up healing today, you know, are rooted in like indigenous practices um, and customs and have just kind of been you know adapted um, and then copyrighted. Yeah. 
by therapists. So yeah. I'm so happy that you're people. having that conversation. It's such an important conversation for us to be having as a field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, um, this has been so interesting with, we have about 10 minutes left. So I would love to just hear like anything that you haven't talked about yet that you'd like to share, just anything that feels important to you or that you're, you know, passionate about, um, doing this kind of experiential work with people. Um, well, I'm, you know what I'm most, I'm, what I'm most passionate about, first of all, I do love doing experiential work. Mm-hmm. There is nothing like kind of getting your hands in and getting dirty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just love it. When I have a session that's strictly talk therapy or not when I have one. Okay. But when I'm having a week where the week is kind of talk therapy heavy, um, it's not as, uh, it doesn't feel as fulfilling to me. Like, I love it when we're really getting deep and we're really getting dirty and we're really digging into shadow. Now I'm also, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Everybody needs something different every time. And if a client is like, I really just need to talk this week, that's totally fine. I'm happy to honor my client exactly where they're at. And sometimes experiential therapy can like, can be, feel a little bit like getting kicked off the cliff. Um, and so if a client yeah. is in a really delicate space, we're not necessarily going to, you know, do a deep dive. So I don't throw the baby out of the bathwater and I honor where people are at. And I know that all facets of therapy are important and helpful and should be timed appropriately. Um, so I'm really crazy passionate about the deep diving work, but I'm super, super passionate about having conversations around um, I don't, do I have to be politically correct? You can say whatever you want. Like our field is so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I feel like that is politically correct to acknowledge that our field is so fucked up. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> okay, good. Yeah. I don't know how to say it, but it's like arbitrary labeling. And, um, I, I think it's, I have a problem with being given the power to diagnose people. I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. And I don't think I should have that power. And to be perfectly honest, I don't believe in like the most of the labels. Like, yeah, I hate the DSM. I like resent the DSM so much. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like, it, it, it would make a great, like, it would be great in my fire pit, you know, like that's about as useful as it is. I I take insurance. And so as an insurance driven therapist, I mean, I I have to use diagnostic coding and I hate Mm -hmm. it. I feel dirty every time I do it. And I always am considering going to cash practice to avoid that. But I feel like people should be able to use their benefits. They're paying an arm and a leg through them. And they, you know, like I'm always struggling with that balance. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving anyone a blood test. I'm not giving anyone a brain scan. And to the best of my knowledge, like we haven't even used true double blind laboratory research to prove that any of these diagnoses exist. No. And there's so much misdiagnosis. I mean, it's like people talk all the time about how, you know, you shouldn't self-diagnose because you're going to end up misdiagnosing yourself. And then I'm like, yeah, but you go to six different therapists and often they're going to have six different diagnoses for you. So this is not like a perfect science in any way. And I feel like therapists trying to pretend that it is a perfect science is just totally, you know, not, not honest. 
Uh, I'm so glad that we're aligned on this, so I don't have to, yeah. have to be honest about it. No, not at all. Yeah. yeah it's, it's all it's a bunch of like, troubling. It's a bunch of, in my opinion, it's a bunch of bullshit, like yeah. by pharmaceutical companies handed down through medical schools so that like we can diagnose people and then prescribe people something. And now there's this like money pipeline that's happening. Yes. I mm-hmm. mean, if, if I had to diagnose my clients with, I, I would diagnose everyone I know with human suffering, that's what's happening. Yeah. We're suffering yeah. the human experience and yeah. it's tough. It's a tough planet to be on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess I want to acknowledge that like, I, I don't think that labels are completely useless because, you know, they can help when people identify with a diagnosis. I know that people can find relief um, in having kind of like a descriptor for their experience and then having like maybe community with other people that like when I got um, my ADHD diagnosis, I was like, okay, that feels really helpful for me because that like contextualizes a lot of my life experiences. It helps me like maybe build community with other people that have similar experiences. So it's not like I, I don't hold judgment, you know, that all diagnoses are completely useless. But what I do hold judgment towards is like the way that diagnoses have been medically kind of organized. Um, and there, there was that recent study that came out that was, I can't, I'm going to have to put the citation for it somewhere in the episode description, but it was someone that looked through the DSM and basically looked at all of the symptomatic overlap between all these different diagnoses and found like the rate of symptomatic overlap is so absurdly high that it's like, how are we even doing differential diagnoses? Like there's just so much of it that doesn't make sense. Well, and how are we doing differential diagnoses without ruling out like metabolic problems, health problems? Like if we're going to give someone a mental health diagnosis, it feels very important to me that we're ruling out whatever could be going on physiologically that's causing the symptoms. Like copper deficiency can show in the form of psychotic episode. And so, yeah, you know, before we are just calling someone schizophrenic and putting them on antipsychotics, should we not be looking at their metabolic profile and doing proper differential diagnosis? And I agree, like diagnosis can give meaning to suffering. Um, I, I don't, I don't debate that point at all. Um, like I, when I'm low, I tend to go into cycles of depression. That's kind of my go-to place. And, um, it, it's, it's, it's impactful for me to have that language that other people use collectively so that I feel like I'm understood and I'm not alone, but the way get to diagnosis is a fucking problem. Yes. (laughs) Um, let's, not diagnose anyone with like a brain disorder without looking at their brain. It seems yeah super bizarre to me. Yeah. And no, I love that you brought this up. It's it's so it's funny because the episode that I recorded um last week that hasn't been published yet, I was talking to a therapist that was saying something really similar about someone he had known that had been um like diagnosed with depression long term had tried, you know, every kind of therapy for depression and then finally went and got a blood workup and turned out that he had, I think it was like a serious vitamin B deficiency, you know, that was causing all of this. And so that he was talking about how, like, I think a lot of professions do this, but as therapists, it's so easy for us to kind of become narrow-sighted or have tunnel vision where it's like, oh, I'm a trauma therapist. So I'm just going to assume that everything comes from trauma or like, you know, I'm this kind of therapist. 
and it's kind of the what's the what's the phrase when you're a hammer everything looks like a nail yeah that kind of thing so just that we need to be open-minded to like all the different complexities that can be contributing to someone's mental health and like be more thorough before we jump to conclusions amen honestly just amen to all of that and it's important too because um you know, when we put ourselves in the role of the expert, quote unquote, the expert, which I'm not an expert on anything, <laughs> like <laughs> especially not on human suffering. Like every client that comes to me is coming to their experience of being human in a completely different way. One person's depression is very different from another person's depressive cycle. Yeah. Um, you know, what happened in Susie's life is different than what happens in, you know, Lisa's life. And, and so everything in my opinion, everything in our field should be taken through the lens of subject, subjective phenomenology. And if I'm quote unquote, the expert, which is how we've trained people to look at like doctors and psychologists in our culture is they're like in this weird yeah. God position. And honestly, yeah. how many people do you know, like chronic illness sufferers, they've been going to the doctor for decades and they're getting no relief at all. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So many. <laughs> and and these are like these people that we put on a pedestal as experts. And when we are looking to someone else as an expert, we're relinquishing our self-authority. And so it's really important for me that I'm like a sojourn traveler with the client. Like, and I will make suggestions like, should we consider getting a blood workup and looking for inflammation in your brain? before we assume that what's going on is you've got bipolar, for instance, you know, um, make these suggestions so that they can kind of get their think tank open and become open to the possibility that what could be going on might not be this label that they've been given and that they are perhaps even attaching themselves to. Like, let's look at it a different way. You're the authority on your life. What do you think it could be? Here are some things that I think could be going on. What are your ideas? Let's brainstorm together. Like, I think any therapist with their worth their salt is guiding people back to themselves. Yes, yes. And I think what you're talking about is especially important for complex trauma and attachment trauma because so much of the experience of complex attachment trauma is feeling powerless and feeling mm. like you have to, you know, surrender your sense of self, your own internal yeah. wisdom and and so I feel like when therapists really take on that authoritative role, it can almost like reinforce those traumatic dynamics, right? Instead of being yeah. like a healthy environment where the client is guided to like, you know, trust yourself and learn to tune into your own body and your own needs and all that good stuff. Yes, totally. Yes, totally. So beautifully said, Kina. Really well said. Yeah. Well, I like the turn this took. We're like, we're talking about some modalities and then we had to have like a little political tangent about the issues <laughs> in the psych field. But I mean, I'm, I really am so glad. I feel like it's really important. And I think it's like helpful for clients to hear therapists discuss this too. So like people out there know that there are therapists that are also critical of the field, right? And that we're not just like, you know, totally leaning into that authority figure role that maybe some therapists do. So I think it's really, really important stuff. Yeah. A lot of people are afraid to come to therapy because of, you know, how, how kind of defunct and drunk on power our field has, has come. So it's nice to connect with other outliers. I appreciate you creating space for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you um, lending your time to talk about your, 
your experience today. Um, before we wrap up, are you accepting clients? Just because people always want to know when I have a guest on here, like, can I work with them? I, I'm like, I have, a, I'm always accepting clients, but I have a wait list right now. Okay. And what state are you practicing in? I'm licensed in five states. I'm licensed. Oh, wow. in, yeah. I'm licensed in Tennessee, Georgia, Illinois, California, and Arizona. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, I will be including your website in the podcast description for anyone that wants to get a hold of you. Okay. It was so great talking to you. Thank you for creating space for me. This is like important for me. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Have a good rest of your day. Okay. Happy weekend.